encourage you guys to continue this theme. Honestly, I think it's a gift to the industry. I loved your post that 2024 should be the year of unreasonable hospitality. Hey there, Scott. How's it going today? I'm doing well. I've been lying for the last few times that I've answered that, Conrad. Yesterday, I found out finally that I am cancer-free after five years. So that was a huge win. Yeah. And again, it was something that I carried uh, for a few weeks and, and only a handful of people knew. Adam was one person that knew, but it was a pretty small group outside of that. And it was, right. I think we've left a real good name for ourselves here in the podcasting world as far as being authentic. And I think we're starting to all hear that bubble up. And, and there was a period of time where I felt like I was not being authentic. Uh, but again, I didn't have the answers. I, I knew that something was there. I knew I was scared, but I didn't know what to say or, or how to say it. So glad that's over. And now I'm I'm just cancer-free. So I'm living well today. I told the team this morning, if they notice anything different about me, it was because I lost a million pounds overnight. So <laughs> stay there for a while. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I feel like, Scott, that's a reflex all of us have, don't we? How are you doing? Okay, because who wants to stop and be like, all right, well, here's what's going on. So I got this problem, even though we all have these problems. So first of all, I'm glad to hear the news. But uh, yeah, we, maybe we should figure out a better way to ask that. The thing that we do on our team call, Scott, I think I mentioned this on the show before. Every Wednesday, we have a team call at three o'clock. And I go, give me a personal win and a professional win. Um, but I don't know if I've said this bit before, which is that I don't keep track. But once every other month, you can just be like, you know what? I had no personal wins this week. I had no professional wins this week. And we just go ahead, complain for a few minutes, let us listen to your complaints. And then people complain and then they go, ah, and then they feel a little bit better. So there's weeks like that. And I'm glad those weeks are behind you. And now we've got a personal win and a professional win. So I'll tell your story. Let's roll. Good stuff. Adam, how are you doing? What's going on in your world? I'm doing fantastic. And part of that reason is Scott's news. What a what an amazing piece of news to be able to share here, but also just within our team to, to be able to let that relief sink in for everybody. It's something that you think is individual until you're part of a team and you recognize that one person uh, might be hurting a little bit, but even beyond that, what that implication could mean from a business perspective and, and Scott being distracted or focused on something else is going to impact the rest of us. So it's not only a personal win for Scott, but it's a huge business win for us heading into 24 as well. So we can really focus and, and put our foot on the gas. So psyched for that. But the, a couple of things I'll, I'll pull out there. One is that authenticity part that Scott mentioned. I, I think we're starting to see that. I think that's part of the culture that we're starting to build on the podcast here. We've heard that mentioned the last, I think, three or four weeks, which is exciting because I think that's what we were our goal when Scott and I started this was we want to be as real as possible. So that authenticity to see that culture starting to grow and having guests start to gravitate towards that is, is really exciting. So I'll, I'll touch on uh, two sports things real quick and then we'll, and then we'll get rolling. That culture side of it is very difficult. And Conrad, you mentioned this to me last week when I was saying, I'm going to miss the indoor game. My son's uh, up traveling. And, but I was excited because I felt like the boys were ready to play, even though I didn't necessarily trust the coach that was stepping in. So good news is they won five to two. So I think the culture is, is really coming through. Now, I think we probably should have won by 10 goals instead of three, but they were missing the coach. They were missing one of their captains. So I'm happy that they're able to take that culture and run with it. And I think that we still have a lot of room to improve, but it's exciting to see that. But the other part from a sports perspective, which I think ties into today's discussion, is I don't talk about this much, but the other sport that my son's focused on is lacrosse. I've never played lacrosse. I never got into it. I love it. I, I wish that I had the opportunity when I was younger, but I'm a huge fan of multi-sports and cross-training. I think there's a huge opportunity for that. And that goes across life. I think that if you want to improve in one element, you should start to look outside of that element and start to think about what else you can focus on that will then carry over into that. Lacrosse is very much like that. We have I've been encouraging my boys on the soccer team to go out and play lacrosse. It's very similar. You run the field the same, you find passing lanes. It's, it's a lot of the same techniques. 
and finally they're doing it. Yesterday, one of my guys went over and went to lacrosse practice, which is starting. So I, I'm excited to see that the culture is now spreading from one sport to another. They're starting to embrace this uh, multi-sport cross training. So I'm excited on that side of things. And the correlation to the, today's discussion is Michelle, as, as we get in and look at her background, has cross-trained more than almost anyone I know in this industry. And if you look at this history and you look at how far back it goes, but then all of the facets from the management side to the vendor side to the technology and innovation side, there's a huge opportunity to learn from all these if different aspects and how you bring those together. And ultimately, I think that's where this industry is going. How can we cross-train across all of these different areas of the business and bring them together to start to move as fast as possible? And that's obviously what we discuss here. But I think the crucial part of this is that we're at this crossroads where you actually have to start doing this. Everyone has to start doing this cross training and thinking about this, or you're going to get left behind very quickly because the people who are thinking about this are the ones that are come up to the top very quickly. So excited to talk with Michelle today. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, Michelle, welcome. I can't get distracted on the sports thing, so I won't spend too much time on it, Adam. But I was thinking of the Chiefs, who, as we record this, are heading to the Super Bowl here. And honestly, a team that didn't have their best stuff, and yet they still figured out a way to get back. And that's really what a champion is, right? Sometimes you don't have your best stuff. You don't always perform at 100%. But if you can still win, even when you're at 75% or 80%, then you're pretty darn good. And that Patrick Mahomes guy, he's pretty darn good, even if he's not at 100%. So all good stuff there, Michelle. But um, welcome to the show. We appreciate having you on. We were talking before we record, but the listener may not know you, Michelle, somehow. Um, I don't know why that would be the case, but they may not. So if you don't mind, could you give a little brief background, your history, how you got sitting here today, what you're focused on now, how you spent time in the industry. And then we also need a song that best describes you as well. Right. Oh my goodness. And how much time do we have? <laughs> I started in this business actually as a property manager and we, I had a hotel background at that point. So I practice hotel best practices. So whether it was revenue management, whether it was distribution and you guys, I'm not going to tell you how many years ago that was, but most people in the industry weren't born when I was doing these things. So I, I age myself there, but my, my point in that is that I didn't own any of the inventory. It was a property management company. It had six different room types, all different in decor, five different homeowner associations. It, I, it was very complicated business, but I ran it like a hotel because I didn't know any better. And so that meant a lot of things like getting an OTA booking back there was like this, you guys, I would upload the inventory through an email. I would tell them I have this many of each room type, then hope that I didn't overbook anything. They would send me a fax and I would, you call it Walker reservation over to the on, on-prems property management system, RDP at the time, not Windows based and put the reservation in. And that's how you got an OTA booking. Algorithms were all about the guy named, his name was Oliver and he would come into town from Seattle. He worked for, I think it was the Expedia booking. I don't know, but algorithms was how many, not cosmopolitans did I buy him when he came to visit? And that's how I got ranked. Okay. So there were no, it was probably Expedia at the time. I think it was, there were no special algorithms. It was just, did you take care of the guy? A lot has changed since then. So a company called Navis hired me to, I was using their system and I was using every inch of it and using it to make more money. And I wrote a playbook on how to do that. Then Navis actually hired me to, they wanted me to, to be a salesperson. I was like, no, I want to have effect on more people. So I started running sales. I developed the first, like we all know what leads are now, but back in the day leads, I believe that I am the grandmother or the founding 
mom of lead management, how you do leads, how you treat them, how you look at conversion, how you follow up. Outbounding was a term that one of my customers used when they talked about making outbound calls. I really help Navis take this technology product and make it as a service product. It was the first of its kind. We were getting, this is back when nobody got per unit pricing on anything. And we were getting $17 a unit for this. And this is something that nobody had a budget for. Think about the property management industry paying a flat rate for anything and no software as a service. And we went in and sold them 15 to $19 per unit for this product. Okay. So yes, I am pretty good in sales, but we had a great product. So then from then there, I went and worked for, well, let me back up a little bit. In that role, I did leadership. I developed out sales. I did go to market. I did product marketing. I did product market fit. I did um, just like a whole lot of different things. Cause when I joined the company, they were doing about $3 million a year. When I left, they were doing 40 million. So, and that was the 3 million was not SaaS product. That was long distance phone call product. And so there was a lot of things in my job. And at one time the owner called me a Swiss army knife. And I really love that, but it gave me a foundation to then go do other things in other companies. So when I left Navis, I did a consulting with a revenue, or excuse me, a review management company in Europe. Not a lot to tell about that. It was an individual contributor role, which I hated because I knew that I could be more of a catalyst to things than an individual contributor. And I wanted to have effect on more things and more people. Didn't last long doing that gig. So I worked in distribution with a company called Lexicon. At the time, they had no product. So I did the go-to-market. I did the how do we sell it. I did pricing. I relaunched some things. I really rebuilt the company and got them heading on a good revenue streak. And then I went to go work for TravelNet. Where, and at TravelNet, I was hired to run the sales organization, which had never in the history of the company made their goals ever. And in the made their goals both the years I wrote I, I ran the sales organizations. I also spent about a, about eight months in product. That was fun to run a, a real product team, which meant five or six product managers who then I got to learn a lot about sprint points and how you operate a product and engineering department, which it's funny. You said I wrote down when you said cross-training, because when you said that, I'm like, that's interesting. I've been cross-training in business my entire career. And I didn't look at that as a positive before you said it, Adam. I always looked at it was like, you can't pinhole where my experience is. So you don't think I'm deep on anything. And so is that not a good thing? Now I think it's a great thing, the way you said it. I really do. Good. Think I'm happy to hear that. I think it's a fantastic thing. I think the more experience you can get and the broader you can get it, the better, because it's going to improve across all of the other experiences you have. Yeah, that's right. It's like they all level each other up. Right. With the foundation, of course, being leadership. Mm -hmm. Because all of these things take change and change management. And how do you lead people through that? And that's not easy to do, especially in a sales organization. And there are, there are individuals that time that I managed them went, man, she's a bitch. And you know what I am, but really that, what that means to me is that I'm a good leader because those same people come back to me later and go, wow, 
you, you got it. You got me before I got me at that time in my life. And thank you for the things you taught me. And I'm described as aggressive. That's okay. I am aggressive. Cause you know why? Because I hold people accountable, but they're never surprised about the accountability because I told them in advance, we shared what we were going to do. They agreed to do something. Now I'm going to hold them accountable. So I just feel like that's not aggressive. That's not, there's nothing negative about that. It's all good stuff. So I think all of those things made me better at what I am because they complemented each other. Yeah. And and the, the last piece about uh, accountability, I feel like that's something that we sometimes lack. It's, that's a weakness of mine at times too, right? You tell someone to do something, you explain what you're after. And then when it doesn't get done immediately, what's your reaction then? There's different ways to do it. There's a nudge, there's a friendly nudge. And then when that doesn't work, then it's my tendency, honestly, Michelle, is to almost like separate from that person and be like, I tried to be nice about it. You didn't seem to listen. It's, are you willing to take that next step? But before we go any further, sorry, I'm going to get you on the song question. So a song best describes you. And then we'll come back and do the questions because I, I will forget that if we get going. So. I think Michael Fronte, I'm alive because it uh -huh. just, it gets me going. It, I've seen Michael Fronte, I don't know, more times, I don't know, a lot. But every time I hear it, no matter how many times I've heard it, I find myself dancing around the room. <laughs> I just love <laughs> nice. it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like the dancing around the room songs. I'm not familiar with that one, but we'll have to pop it in. Uh, Scott, is that one that you're familiar with or? It's got a, re a reggae vibe. I'm not, that's probably our first, and I, I know he's not really reggae, but it's close enough that it might be our first kind of reggae vibe on the list, but it's a great addition. Yeah. Michael Fronte, if you guys haven't listened. Yeah, he's, he's good. We'll pop him on there. We'll so pop him on there. Great storyteller, especially his old stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right on. Michelle, let's go back to the history then and start to pull on some of those threads. Cause I think there's a lot to pull on. So, um, a lot of things there, you mentioned that you started this property management thing and then obviously went over to the vendor side, but you haven't returned to property management since, or it appears from afar that you haven't returned to property management since. So what do you think the functions are today inside of these companies that could be improved upon given that you've had this outside perspective now for some time? And would you ever consider helping working with a property management company on some of these yeah. items that you're talking about? Yeah. Great. First of all, I believe all along. I have been working with property management companies to make them better at what they do through any uh, software that I've used. So I, although I haven't been in property management, I've been alongside property management and I have been a, a scholar of property management and what's going on in the industry so that I can help my clients do better. I, I, I find myself, I help property managers even when it has nothing to do with a product I'm selling or a company I'm doing business with, I just go, hey, you know what? We talked about this. Have you ever looked at this? Or here's a document that I have used with other companies. And so I just, I give that information away, knowing that in the long term, it makes the industry stronger and I'm building relationships for a lifetime. So I've always done that. Now, right now, I do have clients that I work with that are property managers. I have two customers, one, actually now both of them, I'm helping them with distribution optimization. They're on the channels, now what? How do they make sure they're getting as much as they possibly can from each of those channels? And, and then I have, so there's two clients that I'm doing that for. One's about 500 units, the other one's about 800 units. So they're not small companies. They've been doing distribution, but how you do distribution to make it right. And then my old Navis days, as far as voice is still a big piece of what we do in our industry, because anything that is important, complicated, or expensive, which I call high consideration, will have more phone calls. 
So that means that if you've got, if you've got 200 units, you should be paying attention to conversion online. So that's something else I have gone in and done audits on people that use Navis like products and gone in and said, ah, you need to be doing this. What about this? You're not, your incentives aren't aligned to your goal. So I, I have been doing that and I probably will always do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scott, I think it's one of those things too, where it's like each piece of the puzzle needs its own level of attention and care. And it's easy. I think the bigger the company gets to, oh, the department's running. It is what it is. Like the inventory gets stacked in, but the aggressiveness that they were at earlier, it just fades away. I don't know if you've seen that in your own career and your own experience, Scott, on your side. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and we've pulled on this string, but there is something about having specialties, right? And, and having the right people or the right companies working on the right things, right? So you don't have to. I mean, one of the things that I say pretty consistently, Conrad, we had outsourced accounting, which went exceptionally well and then had some bumps. But really, when I was asked about it, I said, listen, I moved it to someone that's their business. And and I want them to be good at their business because them being good at that business only fuels me. I I think it's when we get in this scenario where we're trying to be all-encompassing, right? And, And the masters of all, to Michelle's point of, Right. If we looked at this and said, oh, we are the masters of it all. And you can go, man, every little place where you can go tweak and find optimizations. I, I think that's one of the missing elements. So I'm glad to hear Michelle pulling on that string. Because I do think where we're all covered in tech stacks, we're all covered in the next vendor. And you can go like the real vendors that I think that we all need to be partnered with are the people that are really trying to do what's best for that specific part of their industry and let them rule that day. I think breezeway is is i think the top on that list and and price labs i think is number two where you actually have the people conrad and we've talked about it that are putting them forward as oh thank god for breezeway oh thank god for price labs i think that's how i lean in but to your point i've fallen down the trap of let's just pull it all in and, and we'll do it all right and we're in and we're going to do it our way because we're a little bit different in this market so we're going to have to tweak this and looking when you can step back and say, it's their business model, they're the experts, let's ride with what, what they have. I think that's a difference maker. One thing I think is a bit of a weakness on that line of thinking too, Scott, I don't know if you've seen this on your end, Adam, is people who think they know it better, but they haven't actually genuinely explored the alternative. So they think they know pricing better than price labs, but they've not actually used price labs. I'm like, well, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you should spend... 60 days with it, 90 days with it. And then maybe you may come to the conclusion that it's wrong. And I'm okay with that. We have a client in the Bahamas, for example, who prices all his own stuff manually because he's really, there's no comps. Like that's such a small island and so on and so forth. And so I can't disagree with him because he tried these pricing tools and they were under-recommending what he actually could get. But Adam, that's the trouble with technology, isn't it? We think it can do everything. It, re- it replaces people, but it doesn't replace good decision-making, which is what we all need in this business. I think there's a couple of things there. And I, I I love listening to Michelle discuss sales. I'm sales at heart as well. Uh, and our paths have crossed a number of times, but I, I'll say a couple of things on that, Conrad. So first, I think we've all got to be selected with our time. And when you, and this is me thinking about it from a sales perspective, but I think it applies to a lot of things in our lives. When you do talk with someone who is set in their ways and stubborn, we've also got to recognize that and say, you know what, maybe this isn't the right time or the right fit for us to continue this discussion. I say that because everything that Michelle was talking about and that uh, Scott alluded to, and then your question led to is a consultative role for salespeople. And my perspective of sales, good salespeople, I think sales gets a bad rap just in general in life because I think we've all gotten interactions with bad salespeople and you feel like they're trying to sell you something you don't need. 
Good salespeople are not even necessarily trying to sell what they're selling. What they're doing is trying to build a relationship with someone so that when you do need their product, you'll be the first one that you reach out to. So to, to Michelle's perspective, I think you go in and you talk with them and you help them you uncover whatever their issues might be, and then you find the right solution. So I think part of what we're dealing with when we think about technology and either not looking at the right sources because it's overwhelming or getting stuck with the wrong sources and you don't want to change because you've already got the sunk cost fallacy and you've already put the time in. I think it's because we haven't got the right people talking about the right things. You haven't found the right partners or the right information. So I think a lot of life is actually looking for the right information. There's so much information out there, whether it's walking in the Verma vendor floor or doing a search on Google, it's very difficult to determine what differentiates these vendors and these companies. The salespeople know that. Me as a salesperson for 12 plus years in this industry, I talk to more vacation rental managers and more vendors than I would suggest any specific <laughs> property manager would ever have an opportunity to do. So that whole time, I was just doing nothing but research and understanding the industry. Every time I would talk to someone new, I would then share whatever I learned on to the next person. So I think that's really the, the case in all of this is finding the right partners, finding the right information. And when you do, that's when you go really deep as fast as you can, because that's how you accelerate. All those people who get stuck in their ways or decide that, hey, I don't want to test that thing. That's fine, but you're missing the opportunity and they're going to be people who figure it out and get the right sources of information and they're going to pass by you. That's how this industry is going to leapfrog each other, especially at this time where you've got all these different variables coming in. The right people with the right information moving as quickly as they can are going to start to leapfrog people that are falling behind. Mm -hmm. Well, I would add to that, Adam, and that is that it's almost like when a couple of things, people either won't go on the floor because they don't want to be sold to. Yep. Or if a salesperson gets a hold of them, they're almost like anti-information. Uh, no, no, I'm not going to get sucked in by you. Or they don't want to they don't want to spend the time in the conversation to actually share their information because all they want to do is get to price or all they want to do is get to what is the functionality. I want the whole picture so I can really help guide you. That's right. That's right. So that's exactly my point is my advice would be to go, could I have this problem? Okay, I'm going to tell the salesperson my problems. Not I'm going to hide him from him because I think there is some of that. I don't want to be sold to, so I'm not going to give information. So it's like the salesperson is calling, playing hunt and peck on what yeah. the real business problems are. When if you just told them, they would be able to say, I can help you or I can't help you very quickly. Yeah. The other thing I was going to share is I did a podcast recently and I had Steve Milo, Ben Edwards, and Megan Moylan on it. And it was about, there was two parts. One was about, it was both 2024. One was about revenue. The other one was about expenses. And all three of them said that paying attention to expenses is the way to profitability this year, not going, not chasing revenue. And of course they're all going to chase revenue, but that we all, all the property managers got, things have been good, fat and happy. Let's hire revenue managers. Let's hire people to do this. And now it's all about, are those investments delivering value? And they both felt like technology was overspent. They felt like there were underqualified people that they were having to let go. So like looking at what you're spending money on is really important, but that doesn't mean don't look at new opportunities to save or make money. It means be smart about it and not as willy-nilly about where you're investing. 
Yeah. I'll put a I'll put a link in the chat to this book. It's called Double Your Profits by Bob Pfeiffer. I don't know if you read this one before. Sorry, the silly Zoom feature. No. Is it's an old book. I think it came out of 96 or 97 or something like that. So some of the technology right pieces in, in here. Yeah, 94, 94. I was three when this book came out and I found it last year. But anyway, my point earlier. <laughs> hey, I was alive. You said right. that you, I was, you said people weren't alive. I was alive. I was three. But that book is great. So it's 78 chapters, which seems ridiculous given the book is, I don't know, 200 pages or something like that. But really what it is, is one idea. It's one idea at a time of like, all right, what's an expense that I can look at today? And I was so shocked by going through this book and realizing like, there's like step nine, for example, chapter nine is like over delegating and under delegating. Like we've done both those things. I've done both those things in my career. Over delegating is trusting someone too much, just giving them the company card to be like, yeah, go ahead. And that's led to some looseness, like in my own business. Under delegating is I'm spending all this time doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And that's a waste of my energy and time. And then when I gave that away, holy smokes, I just freed up four hours a week. I can go do sell another contract and then increase that revenue. So that book is great. I will put a link in the chat to it. It's not at all specific to the vacational industry. And you're going to laugh at some of the expenses. There's like multiple chapters on on like fax machines, to your point earlier, Michelle, on faxes, but it, the ideas are the sound. The ideas are the same. And yeah. we have talked on this podcast before about profitability. And to be fair, we've usually been somewhat critical of the venture capital money. But to be honest, it's it doesn't feel as bad, I would imagine. I've never really been inside one of these companies. Maybe you could educate me if you've been inside more of those companies, Michelle. I've noticed this, though, when I spend the ad money from these venture-backed companies when they give it to me and then I spend it. They seem a little bit like more relaxed about it when it's the property managers we're dealing with in their small business. And it's John, and it's John's money coming out of John's wallet, and that's going to affect his profitability. He pays attention a lot more closely. John is this fictional client that I'm making up here, of yeah. course. Yeah. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Michelle, but the thinking back to the, that this book that I read just makes me think that you're right. The expense management is just as important as growth and you need both in your business to really maximize your profitability. Yeah. Adam knows this as well. When you get outside money, the decisions are much different than if it's Michelle writing a check for $1,000 a month to Conrad. Absolutely, positively. But at the same time, when things get tough, don't think for a minute that your contract is safe <laughs> because all, all they're going to do is go, what am I spending the most money at? And not evaluate, circle it and say, cut it by 50%. Yeah. Now I just, I'm listening to a podcast right now. I'm not a podcast, a book on tape, Unreasonable Hospitality, which you guys I think have probably heard of. And he calls it 95.5. Yeah. So I really love that. And it had me thinking about things differently in like, I'm the chief revenue officer with extend team, but I'm on the executive team. So I I'm involved with other things, including the PL. and it is 95% of the time be frugal, pay attention. And then that 5% go ahead and splurge on impactful areas. And I love that theory. I really love that theory. So that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's funny because I wrestle with big and small, right? I've, I've been on both sides, right? I, I think, Conrad, the, the thing about big, right, and, and big being the, the venture money, right? They are coming in with a financial structure in mind, right? And quite honestly, that's usually the, the negative, right, is that financial structure. But Conrad, to where I think it puts them in a different perspective is to them, they know I've got to spend X dollars on this to get this, right? That's just a known, right? So when they build that budget, they look and go, that's just a known in the business. I've got to pay $5,000 a month in order to hit these objectives. I, I, and I think that the smaller businesses don't even, many of them don't even start with a budget, right? They're basically looking and every time you say, all right, hey, I'm running an ad campaign, 
They don't have a budget to balance it off to go, oh, yeah, of course you do, because I have to spend that to get that. They're just seeing it to Michelle's point is like writing the check, right? Grinding. Oh, God. Where, where the, the bigger guys look at it and go, yeah, it, it's a line item, right? And, and that line item feeds that line item. Now, to Michelle's point, when the hard times come, then you are, if, if you're in the top cost, they're coming, right? And it's only going to take, you may make one cut and then the second cut, but you just look and go, that when they come to slash, they're coming and they're going to do it unreasonably. But I think largely, at least they go into it knowing Conrad and having that comfort of, of course, we have to spend X to get Y. Agreed. Mm-hmm. It's a, again, Michelle, it's something that I've struggled with personally, where it's, I don't always know when I'm talking to a new lead, like the sophistication of the person on the other side, how much have they thought about this? It's hard to suss that out immediately. Like in the first hour call, 30 minute call, like you don't necessarily know how well they're thinking. Or like one thing that's awkward in these small property management businesses, I feel like, is like you don't really know what they expect to be paid themselves. It's like some people are like, I'm willing to, you know, make my salary as low as possible to sustain myself and keep a roof over my head to grow this business and to make it awesome and to make it big. And I've worked with clients like that, some of whom who have sold the business business for these very life-changing amounts of money. And then I feel like I've certainly dealt with people, although this never was explicitly said, it was implied, I'm not willing to make an investment that's even a little bit unsafe or even a little bit outside of the norm. Like they're not even willing to do that 5% or even entertain that conversation, Michelle, because they need it or they want that profitability. So it's to do great things. Like you might have to cut yourself a little deeper than you want to financially to grow the company and to, and to do more. Nothing was more clear than that to me personally. When we started to hire people are the most expensive thing for me personally. So every time I brought a person in, it was like, that was another 35, 55, 85, a hundred thousand that goes out a year when you sum in all the taxes and everything that comes into play. And it's like, those are the hard investments to make. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Michelle, this idea of investing in people, but then to be, sorry, to finish that thought, the best people cost the most. So it's also like the challenging structure that you have there too. Yeah. So a a few different things. One is as a salesperson, find a way to quickly gain credibility and ask them those questions. Tell me about how you evaluate the, have you in the past ever reduce profit margins to invest in the business, like flat out ask them, but not until you earn the credibility. And so to earn the credibility, you can just tell like, Look, I don't know your business or your business. I know the industry pretty well, and I've got a pretty good handle on things. But what I'd like to find out is how you evaluate this and this as part of our partnership, because I do look at this as a partnership. Now, that might all sound like bullshit, but the truth, can I say that? But the truth is, (laughs) (laughs) but the truth is, it's true. If you, if it's true, if you know those things, you can help them more than if you don't. And when you become, so small companies also do this. They go, things are good. Yeah, go ahead and spend that money. Yeah, that's good. We had a good month. Go ahead and spend it. And then 90 days goes by and they go, so did you hire that person? Did you pull the trigger on that? Is it too late to pull back from that? So also having a balance of how an understanding how they evaluate because you've got to, you can't just, get things up and going and then shut them down, you will have just wasted possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars and small companies. That's hard for them to balance. Mm. 
Scott, I was going to give another example as it relates to the property manager listening. And it's the same conversation they have with homeowners. That's the funny thing I've noticed is that my relationship with a client is not at all dissimilar from their relationship with a homeowner. And a lot of them get a little frustrated by their homeowners at times. And I'm just like, yeah, you frustrate me too sometimes, some of the decisions you make. <laughs> but I think the example we gave before Scott was the classic, that's grandma's quilt. Like we're not going to take grandma's quilt off the couch in this vacation rental house that we have owned in our family for 25 years. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. What do those conversations go like when it's, you need to invest in this property and make this property one of the top, maybe 10%, 15% of properties in this area, or we're just straight up not going to get any bookings unless we drop the rates to zero, right? Yeah, it, it, it's a funny thing because Conrad, we developed our survey, right? So Michelle, every owner before we even will move them to providing them with an agreement, they have to do a survey. And that survey is how they view their vacation home and how they view the management of it. And, and I'll tell you, and, and Conrad, we had another one this morning that we looked at and you can look at it and go, this is real money and and it's a fit, right? It looks good, right? This will work for us. And we all looked at it and said, yeah, it's going to be a no. And it's going to be because they're not a match. And this guy, Conrad, here we go, was, yeah, I, I love Acosta. They're great. They're just not getting me enough money. You guys can do better. He's like, oh, no, that's not how this is going to work. But in there, Conrad, you take this all the way forward in our emails or our approach with our owners is they actually, we re require them to agree to, they're going to give up two and a half percent at least of this year's revenue for us to do something for the property for next year. And that is one of, one of our questions and one of our asks, but that alignment technically is easy, right? Cause Conrad, I'm sending, we have a conversation, I send them the survey, right? So I'm not sitting on the phone asking them which I'm sure would be like really uncomfortable. We cheat and send them the survey and then hit them up after. But we'll have an honest conversation afterward, Conrad, to say, yeah, we're not a match on here and I'm going to pull this way and you're going to pull this way. And we don't want to be in that position. You're going to win and it's just not going to suit us. Hey, here's a few other options. But again, we're sending out a survey. We're not brave enough yet to have that conversation uh, to say, here's why you don't fit with us. Yeah. Ever it's hard. People owners... don't expect rejection. Go ahead, Michelle. Sorry. I was like, do you ever have owners that say, but I won't do that? Oh yes. Yeah. We, we had one that we were like rolling, like everything was going fine. And then I don't remember, she was the one that was like, okay, the only thing I ask is that on the day of check-in that everyone comes and we just want everyone to stand in front of the ring cam just so we can see everyone. And we were like, oh yeah, no, made it all the way to the last minute. And then boom. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, go ahead. given like a few warnings. And then when she pulled out, I was like, oh, she's lying. She's going to be a real pay. No. <laughs> I feel like 10% of me is just rip out the ring camera. If I owned a vacation rental, I feel like the ring camera is going to cause me more psychological pain than actual benefit personally. Like the one small upside that's going to cause of, oh, I happen to catch this one thing is going to be the constant checking of like, who's going to just let people go, man. You just got to you got to detach from it, right, Adam? Like you just can't stress yourself You put yourself it in a much. rental program, right? So you put it in a rental yeah. program. You need to believe in the rental program. The other thing that, and I want to touch on maybe two words that I pulled out of what Michelle was talking about there, but I think that this industry has made decisions for a very long time about the 1%. Oh, I, I need to have people check in so I can make sure that it's a it's a, a family group and not a non-family group. It's just stop. Just let everybody go on vacation and enjoy vacation. You put it in a rental pool, let it happen, trust the process. But the two words that I pull out, as we get to the end of this, as I was listening to Scott and Michelle talk about that, 
One, I think is balance. I think that, and balance isn't easy, right? Balance between the large PE versus a smaller customer. Balance as you're making decisions, balances, things are changing. I think that balance is really difficult and especially difficult when times are shifting and, and variables are shifting. So I think a lot of what we're doing as business owners, as managers, as leaders is trying to figure out where that balance is. And I think naturally some people lean to one side or the other. And the hard part is that once you lean, it's very difficult to go back the other way. So I think that finding that line where you can walk the middle and find balance in all of the things that we're doing and all the things that we're talking about is really important. But the other part that I pulled out from Michelle there is that authenticity. Again, thinking about that word that keeps coming up, or at least in my mind, Michelle talks about the questions that a salesperson should ask and says, it's, it seems like bullshit, but it's not. The reality is that it's not if, if the person asking the question believes it and believes that they can help. And I think that correlates back to hospitality. It correlates to the guest experience. Everything can seem sort of cliche and cheesy if we don't believe it. But as soon as you interact with that person that actually believes what they're talking about, all of a sudden it takes it to a new level because you recognize that their belief is a passion in trying to solve whatever is in front of them. So I do think that there's this sort of balance on that side as well between cheesy, authentic, how do you find that? And not everybody's going to be the same. Not in every interaction is going to be the same. But if you hold that authenticity and you believe in what you're providing, I think it comes through in what you're saying and, and the actions that you have. Yeah. Yeah, maybe... Yeah, maybe Michelle, I, was, I think the thing to expand upon there, like we were talking about before, is that Scott has standards of what type of owner he's going to allow into his program. And I feel like that's something you've been around the industry for some time that like we don't really have. No one agrees really what exactly the check-in process should look like. No one agrees exactly 100% what the, how we break down fees. That's a common one, right? Um, who gets this fee? How much goes to a, pro a property owner? How much goes to the the vacational manager and so on and so forth. What's been your experience there as both a traveler and being inside all these companies with standards? Every company does it a little bit differently, right? Oh, yeah. This is fresh on my mind. I even thought I need to start a business, but I'm not going to start a business. I know I'd like to work less, make same money, but work less. But I don't think fees and that sort of thing can be standardized. I just don't. Every market has different commission structures. Like in Colorado, you can charge more than you can in Florida and Hawaii. You can charge more than you can charge in Tennessee. So I, I don't think that's going to be something that can be structured, but, <clears throat> or kind of pattern, but standards on things like, uh, you know, I was just in a vacation rental and booked it because it had been raining and freezing here for a week. And we were like cooped up. So we said, let's go to the coast where it's probably going to be raining, but we can have this gorgeous view of the ocean. I paid top dollar for the coast. I paid $600 a night to have this place with this killer, gorgeous view, beautifully decorated, lots of space, all good stuff. We check in and there is a probably 10 foot sand dune in front of the window that has no view. The place is dark. It's on both sides of the whole place. And so that was the first problem, right? But there were so many problems about, first of all, they should never have sold that, right? They should never have sold that with the same view. But then we got there and there's things like electrical cords plugged in to do main lights that the there's no on and off for. So you have to plug and unplug the light or you go into a bathroom and there's a switch there, but it doesn't actually work to the light there, but there's another switch over by the shower that works for another light. Things that TVs didn't work unless you plug them in and turn to switch on the outside. I have a three-year-old granddaughter. The whole experience was terrible. 
the automation, automated emails, those are all things that we should do some sort of standardization around. And we could do it. It's a, maybe it's a three point standardization, right? And three is two is acceptable. Good sheets. It's safe. Like the decor is good, et cetera. Right. Five is out, or excuse me, three is outstanding. And one is buyer beware, but just know you're going to get a discount in your price. Just know instead of paying $600 a night, you're going to get $200 a night because you don't have views and the place is dodgy. I just feel like the standards. And so the, I, I see in vacation rentals a lot. Okay. I have now had one experience in all of the vacation rentals I've been where what was delivered was advertised. So I'm getting the point, and I always, I search on Airbnb and VRBO, and then I book direct. But you know what I said to myself? I'm going to go ahead and pay the extra on Airbnb because it's insurance. If they don't deliver on the standards, I can blast them until they take care of it. And you guys, this is a real problem for our industry. Again, I've stayed in a lot of vacation rentals, and one has been to the standard that you would expect based on what was advertised. I, I've said this to clients. I've said this to clients before, Michelle, and I feel like they shake their heads or they don't understand it. And I'm like, your guests like booking an Airbnb. It's very obvious that is the case when we look at the data, when we look at the numbers behind it, which is that they enjoy having the middleman. You hate the middleman. They like the middleman. I think to your exact point there, Michelle, which is that I can now go to someone. Now the enforcement of the middleman or the middle person, whatever at Airbnb, can be wildly different from one situation to the next. I'll tell a quick story here, Michelle. We had a scenario. We stayed in Charlotte a little while ago. Couldn't there couldn't really find a property manager in Charlotte, not necessarily a destination city uh, for vacation rentals, but we found one on Airbnb. We booked it. And the host did let us know the last day they were actually going to be dropping off some materials because the roof was going to be replaced after we departed, which wasn't like a bad thing to me. They were just going to drop something off in the front of the yard and then leave. And we were there that day. That wasn't quite how it went. How it went is they were on the roof at 6.05 a.m. or something like that, tearing the roof tiles off, like just chucking them in the front yard while we were still there. We were we could check out at, I think it was 10.30, 11, something like that. And they woke up my infant daughter and my son and we everyone was screaming. And I was like, okay, well, I guess we're getting out because we can't even eat breakfast or whatever. So I messaged the host and I'm like, look, I'm in the industry. I don't, I'm not going to leave you a negative review, even though my wife was like the one who was like, let's go ahead and just trash them, leave a one-star, two-star review. And I was like, this is what happened. Here's what, here's it was just disappointing and to what was actually a pretty good stay overall house actually was in my mind what we expected we paid a good price and so on and so forth she immediately goes into refund mode though michelle so what's the number right how much do i have to refund so you don't send me a negative review because i didn't say in that initial message that i wouldn't say a negative review it was just like ah this was disappointing and when it was all said and done i pretty much stayed there for free and it wasn't free when you look at the fees and everything like that but she refunded 300 odd dollars of a 400 dollars stay it was only two nights or something like that at this place and i was like this is how people maintain this top rating on at platforms like Airbnb when they have to go into refund mode. So I don't know what the right answer is there, Scott, but it's certainly not trusting the platforms blindly to deliver or, or the, the reviews blindly because of how easily the guest is bought off when they've had some kind of problem, whether it's legit or not legit. I feel like mine was pretty legit, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, th I think it's, I, th I think the rough part is that the answer, like Michelle was saying, is really easy and obvious tell the truth on on the description and and let the consumer make the choice we we dealt with this right in the old vantage days right vantage we were huge in in sunset island but sunset island is very there's hundreds of condos right all the same there's you know 50 townhomes and then there's 50 single family homes what we would run into all the time right we managed man a few hundred in there 
But the four of us book, we all book a townhome and we're like, boop, in line. And all four of us have a completely different experience, right? And what it always came down to is just that moment where sometimes it was like going okay until I rolled into Michelle's place and went, wait a goddamn minute. Like, this place is really nice. What is, right? And and then it just, it cascaded. But to Michelle's point, if you look at it and just say, and, and listen, there's verbiage. There was a company in Telluride that did this like really well. And they had very clear standards. This is a platinum product. This is a gold product. And then they had the economy product. And essentially it was like, here's the list of standards for this economy product, but you're getting a screaming deal. And, and it, it it was just like, but you look at that and then there, you have the conversation. You look and go, it's the good, better, best conversation. Put it in the consumer's hands and let them decide which one they're going to do. But when you portray that everything's perfect, and then you line up four people and they're all paying the same thing because that's the way pricing works. And there's four different experiences. You did it to yourself. If, if, if it was clearly articulated in that listing and you gave people the opportunity to say, yeah, we're a little tighter on money and I'm going to take the lesser this year. Those people will sail right through that reservation and never have an issue with you. If you pretend it's just as good as everything else, you're going to pay the price. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know what the right answer is, though, Michelle. You know, it's like, do we, you know, how do we enforce set standards? Like in the hotel world, they have like almost like neutral third party people that can come in and certify a hotel to be a certain level of standard and things like that. Does such a thing, not 100 collection is the closest thing I feel like to that, but even that's just really more looking for the high end. It's looking, it's intentionally omitting all of the like middle end, low end products, yeah. but that product is yeah. very popular. Yeah. Verma makes the, we could go on a whole nother hour on this, but <laughs> Don't Irma think makes the best sense, best sense, including having a booking platform. Like they're, they are the area association. I know. What was it called? The switch. I was just going to say, yep, you're bringing back memories. Bringing back the switch. But technology has changed and, oh shoot, Escapia uses Booking Pals Wizard to fund their distribution other than a few channels and it works great. So things have changed in how the APIs work and that sort of thing. Even the PMSs have gotten more sophisticated. Think about back when the switch was. Most yeah. of those were on-premise, not web-based. Right. There was a lot of problems there. So uh, there is a chance there. And so I would love to see Verma be the one to head that up, but I don't know if they can get out of their own way. Oh, did I say that on the podcast? I don't know, but that's well discussion. I do agree with you, Michelle. I think that if there is going to be somebody who can solve it, it is Verma. And I also agree that is the opportunity is that booking channel, right? It's the one that could be professionally managed. You could set the standards in order to qualify to be on it. You have to meet X, Y, and Z standards. Other than that, you're going to get stuck in that uh, review circle that you just talked about, Conrad, because the, as much as Michelle wants to, and it's sad that us in the industry have to do this, but as much as Michelle wants to book on Airbnb because she knows that Airbnb will pay attention and give her the refund, it's because she's the guest holds all the power in that relationship. The reason that person was willing to give you that refund, Conrad, is because the review is it's so uh, skewed in the way that the, the host is going to be punished by Airbnb for anything. And it it's, doesn't have to be real. It could be just a side comment from a guest that reduces your booking. And as soon as that happens, you fall on the algorithm. So these hosts are just wholly dependent, not only on Airbnb as the platform, but around the review structure. It's totally broken. Now it is what it is today in today's market, but I agree that 
there is a way to bring technology into this discussion. And I think Verma is the one that, that should lead that. Yeah. 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 It's like yeah. this world of like enterprise software reviews didn't exist, Michelle, before Captera and those types of sites out there. And now in theory, it should be this like neutral third party. I can go in there and leave a review. I don't know if it's exactly that way because I get incentivized like crazy to be to leave reviews on these software platforms. So if I use a tool for my own agency, not even in the vacational space, but it's, oh, you use this tool, please leave us a review on Captera. I'll send you a $50 Amazon gift card and things like this. And I'm like, free $50 Amazon gift cards. You may as well be offering me like the best drugs yeah. in the world. I'm like, that. I'll do anything yeah. for a $50 Amazon gift card. <laughs> And I do all this stuff. So I feel like it's so challenging. Actually, we live in this world where information is available everywhere and you can trust so little of it, unfortunately, when it comes to like reviews and feedback and these kinds of things yeah. because of what's happening in messages and private DMs and things like that. This is going to sound strange because this isn't where I spend a lot of my time personally. But I think Facebook groups are often like a really truth-telling scenario for a lot of property managers. If you go look at, there's a Facebook group in every town, every beach town, mountain town, lake town, et cetera. And it's something to the effect of, go explore area name, go explore Ocean City, come visit Myrtle Beach, that sort of thing. And there'll be like 50,000 members in that group. And they actually they actually tell the truth on what's happening. Oh, I booked with this kind of, they were pretty good. There was a few things bad. It's like on Amazon, the three-star reviews are where, really where you find the truth. All right, there's some good about this product. There's some bad about this product. Not people who just mark five stars and move on. Michelle, we kept you a little bit over, so I do apologize, but we've got to ask you a few more questions before we get you out of here. Yeah. One that I'd like to go towards is, is there anyone that you think we could bring on the podcast to talk about anything we've talked about today, technology, marketing, standards, vendors, and anything, anyone come to mind from your side of things? Yeah. Have you ever heard of the name Max Starkov? S-T-R-K-V? On the hotel side, right? He's on the hotel side, but he knows a ton about technology and distribution, and mm -hmm. he is a truth teller. Yep. And I think there are things that the hotel industry has gone through, and I, I hate to be one of those people, but I told the truth. I told this industry fifteen years ago. Look, here's the crystal ball. Here's what it looks like. And here's what's going to happen. And people are like, it happened. And so there are some lessons we can have from the hotel industry. He also knows a lot about the short-term rental space, not as much as he does the hotel, but he's a truth teller and I love having conversations with him. So he'd be great. Right on. I like yeah, that. Michelle, if you give us a quick intro, I've been following Max for the last few months and I, I agree. I think he's got some great information. We'd love to talk with him. Yeah, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll send an intro. Phenomenal. Michelle, we could have kept going. So there's no way I could just cut us off here. But if there's anything else, Adam and Scott, that we missed with Michelle, maybe we got one more shot in her before we let her go. If not, we appreciate the listener for tuning in. Awesome. All right, Michelle, okay. we thank you. We appreciate you tons hopping on. Tons of fun, on. you guys. Tons of fun. This, this was tons of fun. I also like alliteration. So your name is fun to me too, Michelle Marquis. It's just, that's just something that I personally like. So it's fun to say yeah. out loud. So, well, and my business is the Marquis effect. The marquee effect. Oh, I like that. Like in, I can picture that like in big letters somewhere out there. In our I world. need help on a logo. Maybe you can help me on that, Conrad. Yeah, I'm not a designer, but I got one. So don't worry about that. We got, uh, we, we got Corey. You don't want me designing anything. It'll look terrible. Right. We got well, Corey now. So Corey's much. awesome. So appreciate it. Thanks Thank so much. You, that was fun. Bye, Very you guys. Good.